This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... When to Shut Up. The King in Yellow Kid. And our 2021 movie top tens. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The soft flip of the card, the slide of pewter on felt, the whisper of an icy drink being sipped gently through a straw, and Peter Frampton... On the lowest volume imaginable, welcome you to the Gaming Hut, a silent edition of the Gaming Hut. And it's not where Robin and I will sit quietly for 15 minutes and let you think of questions we should have been asking, but instead, we're going to answer the question of when you, the GM, or them, the GM, should shut up. And Robin, besides when you want to bring your ridiculous personal life or your idiotic politico-economic theories up? I think you're meaning in a gaming sense, when should you shut up? Am I yes. parsing this correctly? This is at the game table. Right. Getting you to shut up in general, assumed <laughs> loquacious listener, is uh, is beyond our, our purview here. Really more your mom's job than ours. Yeah. Right. So, I think we've all had times when, uh, as GMs, we have noticed that the eyes of our players have begun to glaze over as we monologue at them, or maybe we haven't, because mm-hmm. perhaps we have as observers of other GMs, we've occasionally seen uh, people running games, and there are more ways to watch people run games than ever before. And perhaps we've occasionally had a little, quite a little thought bubble appear over our heads thinking, when is that person ever going to shut up? And, and of course, 
the irony already referenced of us in a podcast where the two of us talk for an hour plus telling <laughs> people when to shut up is uh, noted. And now we'll move on. Yeah. Uh, so uh, well, often, if you can't trust us about when to shut up, who can you trust? Exactly. So we as GMs, part of the reason people GM is because they like to be able to kind of have a some sense of control of a verbal environment. And sometimes they use that to uh, talk at length and sometimes it's easy to forget that you need to give the players other times to think so uh, this segment the purpose of it is to ask ourselves when in particular should you shut up and how should you shut up and i'm going to begin uh, the actual content of this by saying as soon as possible <laughs> when you are beginning a game session of course all eyes turn toward you you're explaining either if it's a game that you're starting afresh you may need to explain some of the rules to people or the premise of the game or what the setting is. There's all sorts of things that you can probably think of in terms of information that the players need because maybe they didn't read the voluminous handout you sent them. <laughs> maybe not all of them read it. But you still want to, you know, talk in little bits and pieces and get to the point where other people can start talking back to you as soon as possible. So, Ken, how do you gauge how much of a lengthy intro at the beginning of a given game session uh, you're going to give? How do you uh, tell yourself it's time to close your mouth and let other people open theirs? Well, I think one of the things that you do, uh, or that I do, and maybe this is a flaw. I don't know if it's a flaw. I like it. Uh, I think my players like it, is that as soon as I practically can, I ask one of the players or all the players jointly a question. And that can be as simple as, so where do you go? Or who do you talk to? Or what next? Or it's Saturday at 1130. Should you maybe head towards the ritual? Things like that is something that will open up player involvement and activity because that is sort of the core of the game. If people want to just hear me narrate a story, I'd be an audible book narrator. People want to take part in the story. That's the goal of the, of the evening. That's the goal of the art form. So as soon as I possibly can turn a question to the players that requires their affirmative response or action or something other than, yep, I remember that monster's bad. Let's go. That's when I try and do it. And so that can be asking about immediate tactics. It can be asking about general strategy. It can be, you know, setting the scene, even framing the scene saying, let's start with uh, you and Sarah, since we left off with uh, the other guys, let's start with the two of you. You were down in the crypt. What's going on? Tell me what's happening. And then you can sort of do back and forth if it's a matter of you have to build the scene and describe the crypt. Or it can just be they remember the crypt from last time. They didn't want to be in the crypt. They still don't want to be in the crypt. They have to figure out what's going on so that they can get out of the crypt. And either way, you want to turn it from a monologue into Ideally, a themologue, but, you know, if not that, a dialogue, at least, so that the players are involved and asking questions and taking some charge of the scene as opposed to just listening to you describe a crypt at great length. Right. And that's easiest to do in an ongoing game where you're picking things up again. And the easiest technique is to, once you've got something already in progress, is rather than you being the one who gives the uh, summary, is to say, okay... Somebody give give us the recap. Now, mm -hmm. this can be a little bit challenging because sometimes the players enjoy giving a bad, confusing recap for the people <laughs> who weren't there. And so that's something you've got to kind of guide and, and move. So that's a matter of your, your own group. 
another technique is just to go, remind me, where are you and what are you doing at this moment? And if there's a, you know, if this is a movie, what does a shot of you in the movie look like? And so mm-hmm. give people an opportunity to jump in. Now, sometimes you are kicking off a new thing. It's a one shot that you're running at a convention or you're starting a new campaign. And there the temptation is to do a lot of introductory description. And there's all sorts of you know, things you can talk about. You can discuss the rules. You can talk about the setting. You can uh, discuss tone, uh, what have you. Those are all important things to get out of the way. Um, ideally, if you have your player's attention, like in a Slack uh, channel that you have for your game group or something like that, if you can actually get people to focus before the game and get a bunch of that out of the way, that's great because it, again, gets you quicker to the moment where things are interactive. But you may have to do a little bit of uh, triage in terms of what is absolutely the least I can say before we have the players describe their characters. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, the classic way of beginning any game. Or, you know, just say, you know, give the barest possible description of, say, the setting. If there's an exo- uh, you know, some setting that is really detailed and not immediately accessible to describe it as briefly as you possibly can and then say any questions or you can divide it up per different players and say, so this is a very complicated world, but you as the gear shifter from the third level, this is what you know of, of the world you live in. Uh, you as the greasomancer of uh, the surface world, uh, you have a different experience and it's like this. And so at least that way you're kind of tailoring the information to to the players and not saying here's the 300 pages of world that I'm going to describe to right. you. But again, yeah. give everybody a little bit, enough to go on and hook into, and then, as you say, bring it into any questions. So that's the introductory bit. But there are also, I think, times when you as a GM are tempted to monologue or to uh, break in in the course of play. And, uh, Cam, what would you advise as best practices for uh, keeping your dialogue to the players uh, sharp and to the point in the course of a game. I mean, there's a couple of times that you're going to be tempted to monologue. The first is when you're moving into a new scene and you have to set it and you may think, oh, they need to really feel the the deep Edwardian luxury of this uh, sitting room. So I need to describe all the hangings and the draperies and the little fan tods on the mantelpiece. Or it may be a complex tactical situation. So you're going to feel the temptation to say, all right, there's nine uh, ninjas with a shuriken on the balcony. There's uh, two ogre mages that are uh, chained around the big uh, lava pit. The lava pit is lined with jade and there's inscriptions on the jade blocks. And then you just keep going and they stop thinking about it tactically or at all. So the goal is, as in, I would argue, writing in general, get the most bang for the least words possible. Make sure that every word you say is evocative or at least explanatory. Ideally, maybe if you're playing in some games, you'll have a visual aid or you can have a map. If you're on Slack, maybe you've found the hammer set that's dressed exactly like your imaginary Edwardian drawing room so you can pop it up. Maybe you've got a tactical map and you can just lay it out and you can say, ninjas here, ogre mages here, go. Or you are going to just have to lay it out and say, it's an open courtyard. There's a balcony. You see figures up on the balcony. There's two ogre mages chained to the floor in front of you. Go. And then they have to start asking questions. Uh, what's up on the balcony? What are they chained to? I'm a magician. Do I sense anything weird? And get their 
turn it into a dialogue or a, or a multi-logue as opposed to just you endlessly describing that one frame of the movie, which in theory, you know, in a, in a different art form, you'd be capturing it and you'd moving through it already into the action. You have a, a requirement to have them know about it, but you want to get that action going as soon as you possibly can. And anything you can do to compress your description while still maintaining both flavor and tactical knowledge or, you know, location uh, on a broader sense is probably uh, the way to go, I would say. Right. And if you're working from a scenario, there's an older tradition that has gone away a bit, but is not going quite as far away as we might think, which is reading box text to the Ugh. players. And uh, my advice there is always paraphrase it. So uh, if there is box text, take a literal highlighter and mark the particular things that you have to convey uh, and then give a little pricey of that. And then if they ask, again, you can use sort of that detail. And even more contemporary scenarios are often written in a way that is meant to be exciting on the page so that they have a sort of vivid description to them. But it is always better to less colorfully paraphrase what the writer has so carefully written on the page than to go into reading mode. Because then, you know, you're talking, but you're not talking. Uh, it's, you know, you're channeling the writer of the scenario. And I think people start to tune out of that pretty quickly, even if you're, you know, maybe if you're like one of the world's most talented voice actors, they will put up with a bit more of your, your box text. But, you know, even worse than, than you going on a bit too long is you doing so on behalf of the author. So, and again, the object is to get people to ask questions. So you have the answers to the questions maybe in the text that you haven't uh, read out to them. And again, can do that in a more uh, verbal give and take sort of manner. Another thing you may be tempted to inject yourself into too much is discussions between the players. And of course, I think many more experienced GMs know that when the players are talking to each other, that's the perfect time to shut up mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> because they are interacting and that uh, gives you time to sit back and not talk and to think. I would say the rule is unless they're absolutely contravening in-game fact, like they're going around assuming that Lord Wedgwood is dead when he's alive or alive when he's dead and they saw the body, you know, then you can say, uh, did, don't you remember that you killed Lord Wedgwood? You were very mad at him. Oh, right. You know, that that's helpful. But any sort of taking aside in their discussion, first of all, it, it puts your thumb on the scale unfairly. And second of all, it's you talking again. So stop it. Right. Now, there is a point where it may be that the players are frustrated by each other talking too much <laughs> and maybe a one particular each other. And if you start to sense that they're growing frustrated with one another and not making progress in their discussion, then you can sort of gently slide in and say, uh, okay, well, it seems like you have a couple of plans that you talked about. And I noticed that there's a really cool plan that you weirdly dismissed immediately up top. And there's a case where, yes, you're putting your thumb on the scale of a something happening and b getting them away from having rejected the cool plan that you thought they would adopt in the first place. And it, and it can be as simple as saying, it seems like you have three plans going here and you named the two plans that they've been wrangling about for the last 20 minutes and the cool plan that they idiotically rejected. And you mentioned that last. And then it's like, oh, that's the compromise plan. Let's just do that. And yeah, 
putting your thumb on the scale is not a bad thing. It's just don't always do it. No, you're doing it is the important part of that GMing tool. Uh, the other time that you're tempted to run on endlessly is when you're playing an NPC who runs on endlessly and or you want to give the exposition dump, but you don't want to do it in a neutral voice. So you do it in the voice of the old tavern keeper or whoever. And that obviously, again, can be just as tiresome or even worse if you're also doing a silly voice and distracting people. So the job there, I think, is to interact with the characters, have your lengthy exposition giving character turn and say, but you'd know that you're a greasemancer from the surface. Don't your people have a legend about this? And then the greasemancer is like, do we? And the, the GM can burden the air and say, yeah, you do. And it's horrible. Tell them what it is. And then the greasemancer can go nuts and, and help with the exposition. Ideally, uh, the, the goal is to get the information out, but to get it out in a natural seeming way, as opposed to the players put a coin in a robot and the robot just told them the history of uh, the, of, of the, you know, robot level or whatever. Right. And the trick to getting yourself to stop monologuing in character is to make the character reluctant to give them the information. Mm -hmm. And so they have to work to get it out of uh, whoever it is. And that is, you know, the same trick works in narrative fiction, right? That if you have a character who is eager to provide a lot of information to the protagonist, that quickly becomes boring. And the writer will often hang a lamp on it by saying, this person is boring. And the way to make that scene exciting is to make the character reluctant to provide the info and have them work to get it out of them, which to repeat a theme turns a monologue into a dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, well, yeah, I've, I remember the terrible legend about this, but uh, I've sworn never to speak of it. Mm -hmm. And so that gives them a challenge, possibly even a die roll or, or the use of it interpersonal investigative ability, depending on what uh, the game is that you're playing. And then the players feel a sense of accomplishment for having, you know, pulled the information out of you and your role as the game master character, rather than of the muse tolerance at your yet again playing another sort of a Polonius character. Now, when it comes to explaining rules, Ken, how do you make that less of a, uh, a monologue? The trouble is that if players are not going to read and they never do, it has to be a monologue at some point. And the trick there is just to know your rule system so well that you can explain the immediate core rules engine and then handle exceptions as they come up in play, as opposed to describing, okay, now you know how combat works, but here's how mounted combat works. Here's how psionic mounted combat works. All right, everyone, you start, you know, we're going to take a, a little break and then we're going to come back and talk about grappling. You know, that's not what you do. What you do is you say, everything's a die 20. You want to roll high. Um, you're trying to beat a target number or you're trying to hit a, a foe's value or you add such and such from your uh, character sheet and you give the basic you know, a uh, rule that is needed in the moment. And then as more rules come up, that's when, again, if the purpose of the game is sort of to explain the rules, which it often is, if it's a first campaign and, or a demo or a, even a con game, it can be, all right, uh, take a minute. Let me tell you how the psionics rules work, because this is what you want to do. You want to use your psionics. Wait until there's psionic grappling on the mountain. Right, exactly. And then you break out the psionic grappling rules and uh, break them down. And ideally you do it, as the game. So it's like, what do you want to do to that guy? I want to grapple him psionically. Okay. That's when you roll your, uh, psionic fuse roll and you modify it with every point of hatred that you have. And then he'll make his roll and you do it as you do it, as opposed to explaining in 
theory what happens and then you show them if, if you're in a tactical situation already you know learn by doing make them the worked example yeah just in time rules explanation mm-hmm. and since the rules don't have to come from china that actually works exactly <laughs> they they will not get stuck on a boat in the suez canal um and finally i know that this applies to none of our uh, listeners but perhaps our listeners have been faced with this from other gms and will want us to note digressions into out of game, out of character. Uh, Suddenly you think of uh, your desire to uh, analyze uh, the ending of Game of Thrones, or you want to chat about uh, this cool new Transformers cartoon or whatever it is, or you want to, you know, you came up against this cool bit of research that you can't quite fit into the game, but suddenly you want to mention it. Hold on, hold on, Robin. Cool research. That's that's the GM giving of themselves. Right. That's it a beautiful is. impulse. If, if if you've gone to the trouble to work it into the actual game itself. Yeah, right. But obviously. If not, it, your job as GM is to control the digressions of the other participants <laughs> and to sort of gently get people back onto track. And so if you're a digressor yourself, uh, that is something that you want to put in a little bag in a compartment for the length of the game. And then at the end of the game, you can digress all you want. And it's often good, I think, for people to get, you know, the socializing part of getting together, have a bunch of that at the beginning, right? As you're waiting for everybody to arrive. But once the game starts, I think you you really need to be cognizant of, is this on topic or not? And uh, that's, I think, a trait of people who love to talk is the part of loving to talk is that you don't always pay attention to what it is that you're saying. So stay on topic, stay on topic. And of course, again, this does not apply to anyone who's listening now, but I've said it. Yeah. Right. And I guess once you've said it, saying it again would be wasted words. So we should just shut up and move into another hut. The Ordo Veritatis needs you. Needs you to suit up for covert investigative battle against the elusive Ezoterrorists. And the monstrous beings they think serve them. But really, it's the other way around. The dread outer dark entities. All you have to do to help is to get in this bundle right here. The bundle of holding, that is, reviving its Ezoterrorists PDF deal from November 2015. You have this already. But tell your friends, loved ones, and deniable assets to pick up the core of the Ezoterrorist line from Pelgrane Press. That's the Ezoterrorist by me at bundleofholding.com. But beware, the bundle disappears back into a cloud of plausible deniability on Wednesday, April 6th. The eerie sense that something is awry, the crawling at the back of the neck, the sense that the thing that is wrong about the world is somehow weird and sophisticated and literary, and also it smells like 1895 out there, and that's not an altogether great thing, means that we're in the horror hut, but not just any horror hut, one that Jamie Twine has lured us into to pose the following question. In 1895, the two biggest New York papers started printing cartoons featuring a creepy, bald, yellow-robed child who spoke in a strange, mangled slang. Why did Carcosan Energy summon up the yellow kid, and what interest did they have in newspaper circulation wars? So uh, Jamie's referring to this creation by uh, an early cartoonist, uh, and this is sort of at the cultural point. At the end, 
of the Victorian era and sort of into the Edwardian era is when all the kind of cultural reference points start to settle into recognizable pop culture. And the Yellow Kid cartoons, which were, as we'll get to, are never labeled as such, are sort of just on the other side of that barrier. They're kind of old-timey, formative material that eventually becomes the newspaper comic strip. Here, they're more uh, sort of single panels, although occasionally there are uh, sequential ones. And the sense of humor can of The Yellow Kid by Richard F. Outcult is a little bit inaccessible, a little bit uh, old-timey, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of that is sort of, it's it, you you imagine that, you know, stand-up comedy or observational comedy, even the stand-up that happened then, which is all, turns out to be comic Irishmen drunkenly spouting off truths, it's not super accessible to other periods, unlike sort of surrealist comedy. So it's why Crazy Cat, I feel like, is sort of an eternal comic strip from that era, but Yellow Kid is very much of the culture, and unless you are you sort of forcing yourself or uh, convincing yourself to have an interest in 1890s, not even high culture, 1890s specifically low culture, Hogan's Alley, which is the strip that the Yellow Kid appeared in, is going to be a tough read. And, you know, again, you can sort of admire what Oatcult accomplished and be impressed at the ways he managed to work the Yellow Kid into stuff, but in terms of sympathy with the narrative, you know, we have a lot more in common with uh, Sherlock Holmes, I feel like, speaking of Victorian Edwardian fringe character, than we ever are going to with uh, Richard Oatcult's uh, Yellow Kid, because it's so culturally specific in a way that Holmes is not. Right. And so often they are uh, very detailed color, single page illustrations of a, with a lot going on in them, a lot of figures, not exclusively, but almost all children doing wild, you know, festive things. They're, they're sort of jolly. And it is definitely drawing on the uh, on New York and particularly the, the culture of poverty in, in New York. And so mm -hmm. these are in the uh, tough neighborhoods in the slums. And uh, the yellow kid who's who has a name, his name is Mikey Dugan. He has a shaven head. And what that indicates is that like a lot of other poor kids, his parents shave his head to protect him from head lice. And his yellow robe, the night shift that he that he wears, which is a, a presumably a hand me down from like one of his sisters, is exactly that, right? It, it indicates his uh, his poverty. Um, now, what's going on on the robe is at first what seems like advertising slogans, and later becomes his dialogue. It appears on his clothing, and this is where uh, we uh, start to get. Uh, let's just remember that as we get back to the yellow, yeah, King and right. yellow mm -hmm. part. Uh, but some more history. The Yellow Kid became one of the first sort of pop culture phenomenon that had merchandising. So uh, that included everything from like buttons to matchbooks, ladies fans, even Yellow Kid whiskey. Outcult <laughs> originally worked for uh, the New York World, uh, Joseph Pulitzer's uh, paper uh, from 95 to 98. And was then hired away by William Randolph Hearst, a New York Journal American. And in the shift, because Hearst's paper was a little rougher than Pulitzer's paper, became a little darker and, and edgier, uh, apparently. And the strip appeared under different names, originally Hogan's Alley in the New York world. And in the Journal American, it sort of shifted from McFadden's row of flats to Around the World with the Yellow Kid. So that actually did have his name in it briefly. And then Ryan's Arcade. Um, so I wonder, Ken, if you could just briefly talk about the 
newspaper competition aspect of this and the, the era of uh, newspapers at this time. Yeah. What, what's going on in America in the 1880s and 1890s is that we are beginning to develop mass culture. And even in the 1840s, we were beginning to have it with Dickens being very popular in America, Sir Walter Scott. We were importing mass culture from Britain. And as America became a country with more and more literacy, you got more and more money by appealing to poor people. And so... That's where the newspapers turned from basically paid political organs through briefly just ways to sell real estate, which is what they basically stayed until Craigslist killed them. And then they became a thing that you would actually consume as a way to get news and that people who wanted to do it, there was finally a way for poor people to read the news to themselves as opposed to have it told them by their priest or whoever. So as you got increased mass literacy in America, you got increased mass audiences for printed matter that includes newspapers. So you could actually support yourself by selling news to poor people. And it was called the penny press, of course, famously, because a newspaper would cost a penny and you could buy it. And then you would read everything that Joseph Pulitzer or William Randolph first wanted you to know. And because again, you're appealing to as large a mass of readers as possible readers without a great deal of stake in the higher level political machinations that the older papers more focused on these papers focused on the old, if it bleeds, it leads rules. You want to read about wars. You want to read about weird foreigners doing weird foreign things. You want to read about sex. You want to read about murder. And that uh, impulse is what was known as yellow journalism. And it was called that because the papers themselves were printed on kind of crummy paper, but also they had the yellow kid. In they them. had the yellow kid in them. And um, Hogan's Alley, of course, is a reference by Oatcult to Hogarth's Alley, William Hogarth, who also did full page drawings of social commentary about poor people. Uh, Oatcult definitely saw himself in that Hogarthian tradition. And, and especially the early ones, you can really see the Hogarth in them. Yeah. And, and, and that is also, though, Oatcult was a newspaper man and he would go around in the slums collecting news for these newly popular penny press papers. And so he see, he'd see the, these people doing things and he'd think this is really interesting and really fun. And he said over and over that he saw a version of the yellow kid or a, a model for the yellow kid, an original of the yellow kid on, you know, half the door, you know, stoops in you know half the blocks in New York. And because it, there was always that one sweet kid that you were like, what's he doing here? He's sort of, you know, been, you know, he's a changeling baby. And that sort of honesty and lack of malice is what he wanted to have as his sort of viewpoint character, Mikey Dugan. And so the, the way that, He's drawing the comic strip to ever more appeal to that audience is mirroring what Pulitzer and Hearst are doing with the, you know, mastheads. And uh, Pulitzer, of course, famously, he said, the news is only that which someone doesn't want printed. Everything else is advertising. And for a little while in America, that was the goal of journalists. It was to write down what other people didn't want printed. Uh, it, that, of course, has gone away, as has the Yellow Kid, as have full-page comics. Uh, so, you know, good job, 1895. The, the um, Pulitzer-Hurst circulation wars, again, you can only get so many pennies out of poor people, so it's all about which one do you want. Hurst does, I think, probably a better job of appealing 
Again, he invests in technology. There's a whole back page of the Chicago Examiner that was all pictures of cats and ladies in sundresses. (laughs) So William Randolph Hearst invented the internet before anyone did. Exactly. And for a time, there are two people doing Yellow Kid comics because Outcult goes to uh, Hearst, but uh, Pulitzer hires another guy to continue to draw the Yellow Kid. Mm -hmm. That's in 1896, by the way, that the Yellow Kid is fissioned into his Camilla and Casilda forms. Exactly. And uh, just before we get to the horror hut part of this, people (laughs) today look at the Yellow Kid and go, is this racist? Is he supposed to be Chinese? In fact, there's even a strip at the time that comments on people looking at that character and thinking that he's supposed to be a young uh, Chinese kid with a Q, but he's not. However, it's the 1890s. (laughs) You're absolutely going to find racist depictions if you go back and uh, look at those uh, strips. And again, it's it's appealing to an audience that uh, loves and demands racist depictions of things. Right. And so by uh, indicating that this is sort of part of the early uh, Instagram before there was Instagram, the yellow kid makes a little more sense now than he did when I first learned about him as part of the history of cartooning because... He has his dialogue on his night shift that he wears, and Outcall invents the word balloon as part of this, but the yellow kid always speaks through the writing on his shirt. Initially, it's advertising slogans, but then sometimes he's saying things like, yes, you're a peach, Gertie, but you can't hold a football with one hand. This is sort of written in a New York poor neighborhood uh, dialect, or there's a one that's about a bowling alley and the kid in yellow has a cannon. And so his shirt says, oh, just wait till my shot comes and I get this cannon to work. You won't even know where them 10 pins went to. They will have to get a new set after each shot. And that's the hilarious joke. Well, what we're looking at here, of course, are memes. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's the background for memes. You can put anything on his shirt. And what is the King in Yellow, the play? But a meme that breaks into uh, consciousness and begins to corrupt people. So, of course... Uh, this is a manifestation of the appearance of the, the play. He's got the yellow scallop robes. His face looks kind of skull-like. And in fact, there's even one where you can tell he knows a little bit more about Paris he would ex- than you would expect a uh, poor kid in New York. He says, say, Liz, you're a dream and I am dead gone on ye. Will ye dance the Moulin Rouge with me? And then underneath it says copyrighted 1896 right on his robe. such a reference to the... Uh, Uh, intellectual property dispute at the heart of the Yellow King. So when your Yellow King Paris characters uh, need a break and return to New York, possibly in a scenario that you uh, run because you don't quite have quorum, you only have a few of the players, and so they can, you know, go back to their families in New York, and the Yellow King is all over, there's Yellow King fever, and sometimes the characters, they have some experience under their belts now, and they see Oh, wait, there's one of them. It seemed to have the yellow sign on his shift, and now suddenly it doesn't. And then if you actually bumped into a a spectral yellow kid, especially in a dark alley at night, that would be very terrifying, especially if they are replicating uh, because uh, no one owns the copyright to the yellow kids, so there are um, multiple ones around. You could certainly imagine some sort of Carcosan ghoul or entity or just malign thought projection uh, beginning to uh, run around and uh, cause havoc and uh, through the power of uh, his popularity begin to spread kind of a low level awareness not you know of the full play but sort of beginning 
to lay the groundwork for what might happen in 1920 with Mr. Wilde. And so your job is maybe to bring about the moment in uh, 1898 where everybody suddenly gets bored with the yellow kid. This is a true fad and that is a huge phenomenon. And then Outcult gets bored with it. The audience gets bored with there being two yellow kids. And perhaps that is something that you uh, caused to happen. Now, that's a little bit outside of the 1895 framework. So perhaps you do this as a kind of a follow-up or a one-shot once you've moved on into the other sequences. But perhaps, you know, banishing the uh, spectral yellow kids back to Carcosa is what uh, causes uh, people to move on and Outcult to eventually uh, invent another comic strip character, Buster Brown which I was still aware of as a kid because there was a line of shoes. Is Buster Brown still in anyone's consciousness? I think only people old enough to remember the, the, the shoe advertisements remember Buster Brown, and I don't even know if there's still a Buster Brown thing, except for the joke, which we won't say because it's impolite. Uh, I will point out, though, that Oatcalt was in Paris because he worked for our boy Thomas Alva Edison because he was a staff artist for the Edison Laboratories and he did mechanical drawings for Edison. So maybe he did an early drawing of the necrophone or if Edison developed a way to communicate with Carcosa uh, because he was seeing into the future, you know, the, the play is in early drafts, maybe in the 1880s. Uh, and indeed, Oatcald goes to Paris with the Edison Exposition, the Exposition Universelle in Paris, 1889 and 1890. And while Oatcald is there, sure enough, he goes to the Latin Quarter and studies art. So he overlaps just a little bit with our boy, Robert W. Chambers. Uh, he is in Paris with him. And uh, that, in fact, is when he goes from Oatcalt, C-A-L-T, to Oatcult. C-A-U-L-T. He gets his extra letter in his name uh, in Paris. Is that a cult or is that just cool? Who can say? But either way, the fact that you've got a name who, uh, a guy whose name is almost a cult hanging out with Robert W. Chambers in Paris, drawing stuff, then returns and creates the yellow kid. I feel like that is, you know, game, set and match, right, Robin? Right. Uh, you may need to track him down and get the uh, schematic drawings for the device that uh, sucks the uh, Tulpa Yellow Kids back into Carcosa. Mm -hmm. And if you present it as a way to, to get even with that jerk Joseph Pulitzer, who's still drawing the Yellow Kid, even though you've moved on to Hearst, maybe that'll get him to let you look at the at the detulpinator that Edison yeah, designed. that's a secret that will free him from the Yellow Kid and allow him to move on to uh, Buster Brown. Exactly. And speaking of moving on, it's time for us to move on through this exciting commercial message into another segment. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Stop this podcast from shutting up for good alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Ian Carlson, Dreaming Johnny, Martin Runquist, Matthew Baskerville, and Michael Bowman. The whir of the projector, the smell of popcorn, and the whatever that is under our feet bring us once more to the center aisle of the Cinema Hut, where we sit down, Robin and I, after a year of slowly returning, I guess we want to say, cinema, to once more break down our top 10 films of the year. And I guess we preface this, as always, by saying that Robin has a purist attitude towards festival releases that I do not share. So some of my choices may be Robin's choice next year. Who can say? Right. And more to the point, some of Ken's choices you won't be able to see yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or ever, depending. Or ever. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, films. And then I guess uh, we uh, often we begin this segment by saying, is there stuff we didn't see that maybe would have made it on? Or do we do that in this? What, what do we do, Robin? It's been a year, for God's sake. So we're doing this not at the end of the year, but rather right before the Oscars, which gives us, who are not critics, who get links to see things, time to check them out. This year is pretty good in being able to catch up with things on streaming because the windows have closed because, uh, Ken, you're going into physical theaters, but I'm not quite ready to do that yet, hopefully soon. But that means that I think more than ever, the things that we're talking about, except I guess for your festival choices, will be widely available. Mm -hmm. And always also, this was another great year for film, particularly because a bunch of stuff got sat on for a year and it's kind <laughs> yeah. of a double year. And then the things that were actually made during COVID started to come out. And so I could also probably, uh, after my first, you know, four choices, everything else is kind of close together. My 11 to 20 choices could easily be part of a uh, top 10. In fact, I thought of moving things around a bit because there is a similarity of the titles that I've chosen. And if I wanted more variety, I would have cheated, but I'm using my actual preference list. Yeah. And maybe even a theme among them uh, will emerge. Yeah, I have the same factor that my top 20 could be, you know, you could pick a top 10 from my top 20. And with the exception of even the top two, I would say, yeah, that's fair. That's legitimate. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that some of your 10s will be in my 11 to 20s. And I can also say that they're good. Well, it's all cross fingers. So I guess let's uh, dispense with the ado then. And I'm going to start uh, with my number 10 choice is Nobody. This is by Ilya Nashuler. And it's the uh, story of a hapless home invasion attempt that sort of awakens uh, in the heart of apparently a bored, ground down suburban family man played by Bob Odenkirk, his real self as an unlikely looking CIA killing machine. And then the tongue in cheek revenge action 
unfolds from there. It's a combination of Neyshuler's knowing sensibility and Odenkirk's uh, surprisingly strong performance as as this uh, character who, uh, and the great twist on it is, you know, often it's like, he's reluctantly dragged back into his former self, but it's like, in this one, it's like, he really misses this. Yeah, right. <laughs> he really wants the uh, bad guy who shouldn't mess with him to mess with him. And there's a great little sequence where that uh, comes out. And the action is strong. It's fun. And uh, when this uh, became available on streaming during the beginning of the year when lockdown was still really tight, let's just say that it was just the right kind of ultraviolence I needed. The um, Nobody is that one of that clutch of films that I probably would have watched in order to, you know, close out my 2021 viewing, but I was in Santa Fe and on someone else's TV, and it's impolite to watch movies all night when other people are trying to sleep. So nobody, I, I didn't see it yet. I'm sure I would have loved it. Uh, who doesn't love Bob Odenkirk? Who doesn't love being a badass? Uh, my number 10 is Memoria by the Thai slow film auteur, a pitch at a pong, where and I'll bet I got pretty close. It's a film that he deliberately released to annoy people like Robin because it will never be on streaming. He says it will only go from art house to art house playing forever like a Theseus ship and never, ever, ever be accessible to anyone who is not in a big city with an art house theater. But I was in a big city with an art house theater when it played in Chicago. Tilda Swinton carries the film. Obviously, a lot of my rating it that high is because of Tilda Swinton putting a human face on the literally inexplicable that is occurring in the film. I feel like the, not to spoil anything, but the approach that uh, where Sethical takes is more conducive, more congenial to my personal sensibilities than maybe other of his slow films might've been. Um, I did not go to sleep during it, but again, I was forewarned by Robin and I drank a big cup of coffee before I watched it. It's beautiful. It's amazing. I still have no idea what he thought he was doing, but he did it with Tilda Swinton and he did it well enough for me to make it my number 10. My number nine is a widely available, but a strangely under-discussed film, Wrath of Man. This is a Guy Ritchie film. It's a Netflix production, so it appeared, it debuted on Netflix. And uh, it's a rebank of a French film. And Jason Statham plays a very Jason Statham character. He's a very self-possessed kind of crime crew boss. And he goes undercover at an armored truck company uh, because he's looking for the inside man in a, a heist that got his son killed. Now, heisting is also his line of work. And part of what he's trying to do initially when he's undercover is avoid giving away that he's Jason Statham. Right, yeah. And then finally, the other crew, the rival crew that he's looking to systematically kill, uh, do what he's hoping they will, which is they stage a giant uh, heist against them. And then a uh, cat and mouse uh, game of, of vengeance can, uh, goes on. So it's both a revenge thriller and sort of an anti-heist, because in this case, you are hoping for the heist to fail. So it's an interesting twist on a, a couple of favorite genres. And uh, for a Guy Ritchie film, it's a lot like a Steven Soderbergh film. Yeah, he it is. tosses away all of his mannerisms and goes for a, a sort of a strict, austere, stripped-down, formalist approach. And it just works like heck. It's just a, a brilliantly done. I think it might be my favorite Guy Ritchie film and uh, is uh, definitely... Uh, something to uh, check out. If you saw the trailer, you may have dismissed it because it just looked like a generic 
revenge actioner with Statham in it, but it's much more than that. Yeah, I, I saw it on the basis of that trailer because what I wanted was a revenge actioner with Jason Statham in it, and I got, as you say, a, a, a sort of a smoother, subtler Guy Ritchie who is just doing the sheen and none of the ticks. I very much liked it. It's my number 22, so I guess I didn't like it as much as you did, but a lot of what he did is interesting, and the, and the uh, other cast members, Scott Eastwood is particularly good as almost the negative image of his dad, and then Jeffrey Donovan, of course, is, is great fun as another one of the bad guys. So it's a, it's, a, it's a good cast, as well as Statham being Statham and Richie not being Richie, so definitely recommended, but not my number nine. My number nine, by contrast, is The Tragedy of Macbeth by a little-known uh, writer, a screenwriter. Hopefully, he'll do more. Uh, guy, Bill Shakespeare, he's good. It's directed by half of the Coens, Joel Cohen, with his wife, Frances McDormand, as Lady Macbeth, Denzel Washington as Macbeth. It is a deliberately stripped-down, both a stripped-down reading of the play. It's not the sort of blood-and-thunder extravaganza you expect from, like, Orson Welles' Macbeth or Throne of Blood. This is a more interior play about, well, a guy who gets in over his head and screws everything up, which makes it a Coen Brothers movie, really. And of course, the, the the thing that is really captivating about it is that it is filmed as though it is staged in the most gothic brute set imaginable. Uh, it's like uh, 1946, but super modernist 1946. And Bruno Delbanel's cinematography does just an amazing job of of capturing that sharpness and that starkness while you see the human characters sort of corrode into themselves and uh denzel does a terrific job he was robbed i hope he got nominated but if he didn't he was robbed and if he did he should win that's what i say about that now uh long-time listeners will know that there's a hint if uh, one of us doesn't talk about a choice that uh, the other makes lower down on the list uh, so that takes me to number eight and The Card Counter by Paul Schrader. This is a Paul Schrader film. If you know what that means, you're going to get a Paul Schrader film. If you're tired of Paul Schrader films, this is still a really good one, but he keeps annoying people who are tired of Paul Schrader by doing really good Paul Schrader films. And this one features Oscar Isaac as this sort of button-down, undemonstrative veteran who's now sort of under the radar as a card player, but he hasn't gone into the tournament circuit until... A uh, supportive, friendly manager of a pro poker table sort of talks him into it. And the reason he gets talked into it is because he wants to help a lost young dude whose whose own story sort of ties into the horrific secret of his own past. And uh, I've already said that it's a Schrader film, so there might be revenge and an expiating act of terrible uh, vengeance uh, coming as well. Could happen. Can't rule it out. Card Counter, again, one of the films I would have watched if I were in uh, my own house, but I was in someone else's house. So uh, I, I know it's good because, as you say, Paul Schrader and Oscar Isaac, you almost can't go wrong with that. I anticipate it would have scored very highly on my own list. That said, my number eight is Sundown, a film by Michelle Franco, stars Tim Roth as a guy who begins the film by doing something almost unthinkable in that his uh, wife's father dies and has to go back to Britain to deal with that. And he says, oh, I'll, 
I'll go along and pretends to forget his passport, but he didn't. He just wants to hang around in Mexico and do literally nothing. And this sort of Bartleby-esque act of refusal at the center of the film becomes sort of the the core question. And it's very unusual to see a, a character's inaction be A, interesting, and B, be something that you actually start rooting for in the sense of you recognize their sort of philosophical unity and I'm, I was actually mad when at the end, Michelle Franco gave an explanation for it. I, I really liked the existential quality of the first three or even four acts of the film where Tim Roth had del- deliberately checked out of stuff. And that was a, I mean, Roth did an amazing job again, conveying a very difficult character choice and conveying it both believably and even sympathetically. So really, uh, I mean, I think he's in practically every scene. So it's a very much a Tim Roth festival pick. And it's, um, it's, it's really good. I was not familiar with Franco's work previously, which had seemed sort of preachy in one note in the uh, descriptions I'd read. So maybe I'll go back and look at uh, some of his other movies on the basis of this. And I look forward to seeing that one when it becomes available. Next, number seven is The Power of the Dog, which is one of those strong contenders to win the Oscar. If it does win the Oscar, you will know that the younger, hipper contingent, uh, the international contingent of more recent Academy members... Uh, outnumbered the old guard. Uh, this is Jane Campion's film based on a classic novel about the dark, troubled cowboy who works on a ranch, is perpetually bullying his younger brother and uh, bullies the younger brother's new wife even harder, bringing himself to the intention of her very sensitive med student son, who uh, perhaps decides to do something about what exactly the uh, Cumberbatch character is overcompensating for. So it's a film, uh, I said Jane Campion, so it's a film of sweeping pictorial beauty. It's an incisive character study. It's set in the 20s in the West, but it's not a conventional Western in terms of, uh, you know, there's a gunfights or anything like that, that the, uh, the violence is, is subtler and below the surface. Yeah, I am fond of saying that I try to have a Western in my top 10. If I'd been at home, I would have seen this and maybe that Western would have snuck into my top 10. Uh, it's one that I'll catch because it's on Netflix. I'll probably catch it in the next couple of weeks and then say, ah, look at that. That would have been whatever. Uh, my number seven is by contrast an Eastern in that it is a Japanese film based on a Murakami short story. It is Drive My Car by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. And it is the story of a man. He's an actor and a stage actor and stage director after a bereavement and personal tragedy that takes the first hour of the movie to get through. He goes to Hiroshima to direct Uncle Vanya and uh, because he rehearses in his car, he had asked for a long commute to the studio. And when he gets there, he finds out that for liability reasons, he has to have a driver. And this driver is a young woman who has also uh, got a secret sorrow and closed off. Her name is uh, Misaki Watari, played by Toko Miura. Uh, the, the actor is Hidetoshi Nishijima. And it becomes basically a two-hander in which neither of them want to give, but... Uncle Vanya playing over and over and over on the cassette tape brings them into it. It's a, uh, if you're a big Chekhov fan, you'll like this even more than I did. And it's that segment of it, that middle hour and a half of the movie by itself would have been in my top 10. Uh, I almost felt like the climax was a little too pat and the opening wasn't needed. Uh, Murakami, I think, thought the same thing in the short story, but the cumulative power of the film is absolutely undeniable and the, just the, 
amazing job that Mira especially does in responding to the older, more confident actor. It's really a piece of work to watch uh, dramatically. There's a middle bit where they are eating dinner. Everyone at the table is talking a different language. And uh, that is, of course, the whole concept of the film brought down to this one literally perfect scene. Maybe just that scene would have been in my top 10. Certainly Drive My Car absolutely earns its spot at number seven. Really enjoyed that director's previous film, Asako 1 and 2, and I'm looking forward to that uh, very much. My number six is Leo Carra's Annette, which is his first English language film and is an utterly bonkers it was described as a musical. It's really almost sort of more of a pop opera, very mm-hmm. much a pop opera. In fact, the music is by the Sparks Brothers, but features a sort of a provocative, almost sort of performance art style comedian played by uh, Adam Driver and his uh, love, a sylph-like opera singer played by Marianne Cotillard. They fall in love and marry. They have a daughter who's played by a puppet and uh, his egomania begins to uh, destroy their marriage and soon uh, much more than that. It's very surreal, very odd. And of the films on my list, it's the one where occasionally it does kind of seem like certain scenes are misjudged or it's just things are peculiar. Like, for example, if you think that the stand-up comedian that Driver is playing should be a comedian that would exist in this universe, <laughs> you're, you're going to spend some time having to meet the film halfway. But because it is so uh, wild and so daring and has so many moments of am I really watching this? Is this really what's happening? And more of them than not, Kara pulls off. It's sheer audacity made me pick it because it, it swung for the fences harder than even films that are higher up on my list. So, And again, it's an example of the streaming era taking something that would formerly have been a weird thing that was difficult to find and eventually you'd have to wait for the DVD to come out a couple of years later after it played the festival circuit and This showed up on Prime. It's an Amazon (laughs) Prime movie. So uh, let us celebrate the fact that the streaming services are still financing uh, weird stuff like this and that Kara is still making weird stuff like this. Yeah. Weirdly enough, when I went and saw it uh, in the theater, I was expecting the reverse. I was expecting to love the Sparks half of it and tolerate the Leo Kara. I've seen Kara's work before, not a fan in general. I, I see what he's doing. I just don't think it works. I generally consider it pretty self-indulgent, but with Annette, it was almost the other way around. I, I love the sparks, but I thought that the levels of irony they put into the music sort of defeated some of what they were trying for. So the pop opera was not poppy enough and not operatic enough. It sort of fell between those stools. And as a result, Although I absolutely, like you, totally grokked what Corral was doing and what he tried and the sort of effort that he made. Like you, I met it more than halfway in the sort of weird magic land that it existed in. But at the at the end, if you leave a pop opera and you're not humming any of the songs, I can't rate it any higher than, well, in fact, where I did rate it, which was number 28. My number six, by contrast, is Red Rocket by Sean Baker. He's a very, you know, makes very small, very independent films about the sort of, uh, you, you know, it's almost cartoonish to say society's neglected people, but really it pretty much is. You may have seen uh, Tangerine was, I think, his biggest film before that. He made The Florida Project. I had not seen any of them, but lots of people said 
Oh, Ken, you want to see Red Rocket? Uh, this is a movie about a uh, porn star named Mikey Saber who uh, washes up. Uh, something bad happens to him in L.A. He flees back to his hometown of Texas City, Texas. It's in the summer of 2016. And he's a charismatic con man who tells people what things that he thinks are true and somehow gets them to agree with him. And it's him sort of one con after another. It's sort of that classic con man story, building up a, a stake and then discovering his next female porn star to attach himself to as a leech. And a lot of the film is on the one hand, you're rooting for him because he's the protagonist and uh, Simon Rex does an amazing job acting out that sort of fast talking uh, sleazy charisma. But on the other hand, it's like, Oh no, this is bad. This should not happen. Uh, so there's a, a great deal of, of really uh, strong tension. The very small crew filmed during COVID filmed on 16 millimeter. The lighting is just this weird, amazing seventies lighting. A lot of the cast are non-actors. So it's very naturalistic felt like link later in that way. And it's just a straight up, you know, actor showcase. Maybe that's my theme is that it's all actor showcases, but Simon Rex does such a job with a really horrible character at no time alienating the viewer from him that it is, uh, it's an accomplishment. And then just as a movie, it's, uh, an amazing thing to watch. If any of these non-actors want to be actors, I feel like Susanna San, especially who plays Strawberry, the target, the prey of uh, Simon Rex, I think she could, uh, really do an awful lot in character parts and maybe even carry films on her own. It's uh, quite an accomplishment. Really good. It's an A24 film, if that means anything to people. And it's well worth watching. And I'm looking forward to uh, catching up with that one. Uh, but for the moment, I'm even more looking forward to taking a brief break, experiencing a, a lovely, well-shaped, uh, exquisitely contoured commercial, and then coming back as we uh, continue and uh, give you our top five 2021 films. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kaligati, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. Oh, yes, that was just as beautiful a commercial as, as I said it would be. Uh, and so this brings uh, me, I guess, to my number five. And this completes my 
unintentional yet perhaps somewhat revealing of my uh, personal uh, 2021, another film of an undemonstrative man seeking vengeance. And this one is Riders of Justice. Uh, it's a Danish film directed by Andrew Thomas Jensen. You may know him from previous films like Adam's Apple and the Green Butchers. And this has his familiar stock company of stalwart Danish actors, uh, which of course means that it has Mats Mikkelsen in it. Uh, he plays an emotionally repressed military officer, and he uh, strides onto the path of vengeance when a, a freshly fired probability expert, who's played by uh, Nikolai Lee Kaj, gives him evidence that the train accident that killed his wife was in fact staged by a notorious biker gang. And uh, the thing about a notorious biker gang is there's lots of people to pursue that vengeance against. And it's a, it's kind of the, the revenge film turned inside out and on its moral head. And it is funny and twisted and questions the satisfaction uh, you get out of it and is driven by brilliant performances by Mickelson and uh, Lee Cash, which I think is saying what doesn't need to be said. <laughs> it's got those guys <laughs> yeah. in it. And uh, this one kind of, again, I didn't think got the attention that it uh, deserves. So, um, now that it's my number five, everyone uh, will go out and check it out. Well, I was going to check it out because you rated it very highly on Ken and Robin Consume Media. But in my defense, I was eating carne adovada for four different meals when I was in Santa Fe. So, so, And by the number of things that you could have seen, if you didn't go to Santa Fe, you would have had to also go into a time tunnel to see all of these films, which means you've got a lot of great films to check out. Yeah, I do have a lot of great. We, I think we all do. And uh, my number five, I again saw in person. I saw it as a double feature with Tragedy of Death, so it became sort of a Shakespeare double feature. It was West Side Story, filmed by young upcomer Steven Spielberg. This is his adaptation of the musical with the book somewhat rewritten by uh, playwright Tony Kushner. I think that the rewriting helped, you know, nine times out of 10 in that it provided a sense of irony and historical distance to what is very often just performed as a triumphalist, uh, almost condescending piece of work. And I, I feel like Kushner took a little of that away. Uh, I think your description in uh, your review of it as oppressively perfect is, is not wrong. Um, the, just on a filmmaking level, I don't think there is a thing you can say about West Side Story that is not a superlative. Ansel Elgort is a useless ham loaf, but as I've said... <laughs> no, I, I've been notified by uh, the, the other film goer in my household that you are perhaps not the target demographic for Ansel Elgort. <laughs> I, I am uh, happy to not be the target demographic for Ansel Elgort, but I will say that he was less of a useless ham loaf in Baby Driver. That's what I will say. I will say that uh, Rachel Zegler is amazing as uh, Maria, the Juliet. Um, I am absolutely the target demographic for Rachel Zegler. But the whole cast of the, the, the Puerto Rican family and the mixed uh, white uh, street kids, they all play up really great. There's just every performance hits perfectly except one. And the music is, you know, talk about humming it as you leave. You can't stop humming West Side Story. Uh, it's still great. It's still Sondheim and Bernstein. There's nothing wrong with any of that. And uh, it's nice to see in the year 2021, a film that, you know, uses light and color and movement of the camera and, oh, you know, film things. And every other possible uh, element right. of, uh, of film. Yeah, it's definitely a showcase for Spielberg's mastery of space and staging 
And I'm glad you're mentioning it because uh, I get to now also uh, endorse it. And, and it is interesting the way that Kushner has put it in a historical context. Uh, you know, the, the Robert Moses demolition of parts of New York becomes part of the, the text in a way that it uh, wouldn't have been uh, at the time. And so, yeah, just as a, a piece of filmmaking is, you know, utterly uh, gobsmacking and uh, worth checking out. So a thumbs up for me as well. Next, we come to my number four choice is Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson. This is a, a memory film, ironically, not Anderson's own memories, because he was not a teenager in, in 1973 in Sino when it was set. He's from Encino, but it's someone who's slightly older than him, uh, the producer Gary Getzman, who told him the stories of his life as a teen actor slash waterbred entrepreneur that uh, become the basis of this uh, sort of uh, romantic exercise in uh, nostalgia, but also surprising, surreal, uh, strange interactions, especially with Bradley Cooper playing John Peters, the producer John Peters. But it features Cooper Hoffman as the aforementioned uh, child actor slash waterbed entrepreneur and uh, Alana Haim, the pop star who plays a older, uh, she's in her 20s, so there's an age barrier that they they can't cross and won't be able to cross at any time during the running time of the film at any rate. But it's about sort of uh, a, a love that uh, transcends uh, barriers and is kind of a weird hangout, evanescent romance that uh, conjures up the strangeness of a time. I nod politely and move on to my number four. Frequent listeners may note this. My number four is The French Dispatch, the Wes Anderson film of the year, and therefore Almost a shoe in for my top 10. Not always. Darjeeling Express, I'm looking at you. But mostly, I'm a person who likes the Wes Anderson aesthetic, which makes me very much the target audience for this. It uh, stars, you know, a vast Wes Anderson cast circling around, but sadly not featuring enough, uh, Bill Murray as the editor of the titular French Dispatch. And when you're playing Bill Murray with as a world-weary Potter Familias, you are halfway to a top 10 spot almost. I mean, what can you say? It's a Wes Anderson film. It's, it's precise. It's beautiful. It's fussy. It's about tiny aspects of a high culture or middlebrow culture. It's all of those things. It's a tribute to the New Yorker magazine and therefore set entirely in imaginary Paris. In, in, in pretend Paris. It is a, uh, again, speaking of worlds that couldn't exist, definitely the world that couldn't exist here, but it's nostalgia for that world so powerful that you almost feel like it. Uh, I think that, it's a, it's an anthology film. There's three stories. Two of them are absolute walkaway pinnacles. The May 68 one with Timothy Chalamet doesn't quite work as well as the other two, but I guess, you know, there's always got to be a, a, a middle cheerleader, right? Um, you, you can't always, uh, you know, have a, a, a triple gold. That's anthology films for you. That's anthology films for you. But even that film is uh, terrific and wonderful. And Francis McDormand, again, doing a superb sort of uh, weirdly internalized performance, uh, sort of closed off, but open in very interesting ways. So even the worst part of his anthology would have been a, a top 10 film if it had been a whole movie. And then the whole structure of it, this beautiful interrogation of art, through the medium of art, interrogation of fussiness through the medium of fussiness, interrogation of going on at length about something no one cares about. Well, you get the point, right? It's it, it's beautiful. It's terrific. The jokes almost all land amazingly well. And by now, 
you know, everyone involved knows what they're doing and they do it at 110%. It's just a, it's a triumph and I loved seeing it. Maybe some of this was delayed gratification appetite because of course that was supposed to come out in 2020 and did not. And it was the one movie that I was maddest at not getting to see in 2020. And so finally getting to see it was, uh, was, was a, a moment of exalted joy for me over and above the fact that yes, it also delivered on the promise. It is a tribute to how astoundingly good the uh, year was that. A Wes Anderson movie came out. I really liked it. And it didn't crack my top 10, oh. which is no insult to it. As you say, it's no Darjeeling Limited. Right. But it, uh, there are other things that uh, cropped up ahead of it. But still, thumbs up. Check it out. Just the way the world works sometimes. Now, everything else in the rest of my list, I gave the pinnacle rating to, starting with at number three, Titan, a film by uh, Julia Ducarnot. It's a, if you saw her film Raw... And went, oh, this had a lot of interesting elements into it. I wish it had a third act. And this one is, it's like, oh, no, Raw is just a rehearsal for Titan, which is the term for titanium, which is the plate in the head of its uh, protagonist, who is a serial killer. She's undergoing a weird pregnancy. And even worse, the heat is on after her murders get a little too impulsive. And so in order to hide out, she decides to go and pose as the long-missing son of a steroid-addled fire captain, played by Vincent Lindahl. And it's this, it definitely has a lot of Cronenberg in its DNA, uh, not just Crash, but very much Crash. It is the only film ever to win both the Con Palm d'Or and the TIFF Midnight Madness People's Choice Award. It is <laughs> uh, surreal. Uh, it is absolutely disturbing. If you are ever unhappy to be confronted with material in film, uh, probably there's something in here that makes you want to give it a pass. But if you have the uh, capacity to watch extreme cinema and to be gratified by it, it's not a Jello film, but it has Jello material in it. It's not a horror film, but it definitely references body horror. And it is uh, just a, a mind-blowing uh, film. And unlike other things here at the top of my list is by a relatively new uh, filmmaker. And if there is a class of movie you absolutely can't watch on someone else's TV at night, I think Titan is in the highest uh, bracket of <laughs> yes, that class. Everyone, you have to get buy-in from everyone before you turn that so, one on. So I did, I did not push my luck by requesting Titan for the family viewing time. No, no. <laughs> as a result, done that. as a result, my number three is Licorice Pizza by Paul Thomas Anderson. It is, as you said, everything you said is correct. It is a beautiful hangout film. I don't think that it was as pinnacly as his other pinnacles, but it was as high as a film can get in the recommended without quite being a pinnacle. But that said, I loved all of it. I wanted it to go on forever. I would have watched a nine hour version of licorice pizza. Absolutely. Shout out Bradley Cooper's deranged John Peters, which was apparently done with John Peters's explicit consent. <laughs> it would have to be as long as, and, and his requirement was the pickup line with peanut butter sandwiches had to be in his, in his character or else he could, they couldn't use it. So that's where that came from. A little side note to licorice pizza. Alana Haim is the surprising standout of, 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 uh, the degree to which she is able to react. They gave her the sort of straight man part, but she does a great job with it. And it's, you know, a lovingly recalled other people's childhood in, I guess, the same spirit as uh, Once Upon a Time in L.A. when Tarantino was four. <laughs> so, you know, we have the same sort of, uh, or wasn't even born yet, I think. We have the same thing. This is uh, 
PTA, recalling someone else's childhood, but doing it in a, a beautiful, and again, maybe it's the 1970s vibe of it that I was responding to, but I've been anxious for us to go back to the summer of 1976 ever since the summer of 2021. Someday we will, but uh, I, I felt that licorice pizza was a big part of that. It, it uh, was generous. It was lovely. It was human. It was funny. Just the, the crazy, uh, you know, characters that show up and then wander away. It, it's not a, it's barely even picaresque. It's literally just like someone's turning over pages from a old photo album and saying, Oh, I remember that. And then there's a scene about it. It's, it's a, it's a beautiful time. It's everything cinema can be. And it's uh, done by one of my favorite directors. So, yep. Number three for me. Number two, I realized that I just lied to everyone. You liar. And saying that uh, there were no new filmmakers uh, further up on my list than Tatan, because in fact, the Lost Daughter by Maggie Gyllenhaal is by a first-time director, yeah, albeit one whose uh, work we know and love uh, as an actress. So this is her adaptation of the Elena Ferrante novel of the same name, uh, starring Olivia Colman in a brilliant central role as a prickly academic who goes to hang out on the Greek beach for a vacation, and then a uh, large shady, invasive family all kind of show up and impinge on her territory. Uh, she kind of bonds uh, with a woman who has a young daughter, but then she does something inexplicable, perhaps self-destructive, perhaps dangerous, that then in what is otherwise a, a character study drama and a, a drama of um, memory and recollection featuring uh, Jesse Buckley as the younger version of the Olivia Coleman character, but because of this action that she undertakes, there's this unbearable undercurrent of suspense as well in this uh, dramatic film. So it's a complete mastery of style uh, that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a first-time director of any sort, but it's a, a real, you know, home run first go and uh, something that is tonally familiar yet also uh, quite different and striking. And uh, there's nothing at all genre or supernatural about it, but it, it has that feeling of weird menace in what is a realist uh, psychological drama. Yeah. I, um, I've seen a lot of reviews of it, yours included. I have to say, I probably would not have watched that in the interim if I'd been at home, but I will happily see it at some point when Sheila wants to watch a movie for grownups instead of something with a lot of punching and gunplay. So I look forward to it, but I have not seen it yet. My number two will anger you because it is a film you can't see yet. And I saw it at the Chicago International Film Festival, but it was one of my two pinnacles of the year. And it is Petite Mama by the one of my favorite directors. Uh, she's only done, I think, three or four movies, but she is now someone I will follow to the ends of the earth. Chalene Shyama, who killed it with Portrait of a Woman on Fire or Portrait of a Lady on Fire last year. And this is an amazing triumph of COVID-induced small filmmaking. The story is that an eight-year-old girl is going to her grandmother's house because her grandmother has just died. Her beloved grandmother, her parents are cleaning out the house in order to not be in the way and cause more grief. They send her out back to play to find the place where her mom had built a treehouse when she was eight. Well, of course, she sees another eight-year-old girl building a treehouse. The child actors are twins, Gabriel Sands and Josephine Sands. They are amazingly good, natural and human, and, and eight-year-old. It's not eight-year-olds playing 20-year-old parts. It's very, very realistic. Celine Shiama apparently directed down on her knees so that she was not up above the children. She was down, always shooting at a child's viewpoint. That really works. It's a fairy tale, and it is 
absolutely perfect in its construction. Everything happens. At no point are you, you know, surprised in the sense of narratively surprised. You know what's going to happen, but it happens beautifully. And then when you are surprised, it's uh, by Celine Schiama's famous use of music, which I will not spoil by alluding to further. But when it happens, you'll say, oh, man, Ken was so right. Well, I'm not mad because it means uh, there's another great film by a filmmaker who I uh, really like uh, coming up. Now, Ken, time for a number ones. This one you may have uh, alluded to previously. I may have. Uh, it's number one, The Tragedy of Macbeth by Joel Cohen. And uh, as you suggested, uh, it is a stark, striking rendition of the uh, play. And uh, you mentioned how it is visually stripped down. And it is also emotionally stripped down in terms of the performance that they're close-ups on very quiet, whispery performances that you could never give on stage. So it's a very filmic version of it in that very quiet, intense way. I love the way that Washington sort of takes on the pusillanimous, vacillating uh, nature of this uh, tyrant in a way that I think, you know, Shakespeare wrote the the play, the book on tyrants. He's absolutely right about their uh, psychology here. And Denzel Washington embraces that in a way that I think a lot of other actors impose the idea of, you know, a great man who falls. But in fact, Macbeth is a weasel from the jump. <laughs> he's a schlemiel. Yeah, he's yeah. a Coen Brothers character. His wife is even worse. She's a full-on psychopath right from the beginning. And it's, and the idea of having them played by older actors, this is their, you know, they've been waiting all their lives for the big shot and they take it. And uh, it all goes, of course, um, horribly wrong for others as well as for themselves. The uh, Edward Gordon Craig inspired sort of symbolist Art Nouveau sets are also uh, quite impressive. And, and of course, we were almost both about to discuss the tragedy of Macbeth without talking about the incredible performance of Catherine Hunter as she plays another part as well, but she's also all three of the witches. She is a, an English stage actress who just physically herself is an amazing special effect and brings this uh, otherworldly quality to her performance that, uh, you know, do you see that, that, yep, this is just the final straw that Macbeth needed to be uh, pushed uh, over the edge to fully realize his true nature as as an awful tyrant. And uh, so it, this had that sort of uh, dreamlike quality that pulled me into the film, that absorbed me. And it's, you know, maybe not original to put Shakespeare at the top or to put a Cohen a film at the top, but uh, this is the one that I find uh, the most transporting of all of them. So it's my number one. Yeah, it absolutely deserves uh, every amount of effort that people want to give to it. It's... Well, I already talked about how great it is. I stand by that statement. I stand by what Robin says. It's only not my number one because, as you say, this was a year when a lot of good stuff finally came out. <laughs> my number one is a movie that I did not expect. I did not even know what it was when it showed up. I think, like everybody else, I thought it was going to be John Wick, but with a pig. In fact, it is not that, but it is Pig, the debut film of uh, Michael Sarnosky, and it is a story of a man, played by Nicolas Cage, who is named Robin, and I feel like the fact that he lives out in the woods and is named Robin is not accidental. I feel like the whole film is sort of building this wise man of the woods, Merlin-type character out of uh, Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage is absolutely able to play it. He gives a physical performance that is one of the best. He gives an emotional performance that is one of the best, because the reason he lives out in the woods with his truffle-hunting pig is grief. 
And it is a movie about grief. It is not a movie about revenge. It is a movie about trying to get closure and solve a problem uh, in that way and uh, an emotional problem. And uh, it's a very small cast. It was filmed, you know, on a very small budget, but the cast is amazing. Alex Wolf plays his sort of uh, unwilling sidekick and helper. And then Adam Arkin is the embodiment of everything that is corrupt and wrong with uh, the food industry and the food culture. And he's the bad guy and he's amazing. It's uh it's a superb movie. It never sets a foot wrong. Every time you think, Oh, now it's going to turn Nicholas cagey. It turns good Nicholas cagey, not bad Nicholas cagey. And it, it maintains both the mythic and the emotional truth that it sets up at the beginning throughout. It never sets a foot wrong. There's nothing wrong with this film at all. It's a movie I could not have imagined wanting and I'm so glad that it exists in, in the sense it's, it's true creativity. And it was definitely the best film I saw this year and my only other pinnacle of 2021. I also strongly recommend it. Although again, it was an inc- sort of a double year for film. So it didn't uh, crack my top 10, but it, it's great to see a Nick Cage doing a restrained, weird, compelling performance. Uh, instead of the over-the-top weird compelling performances that he uh, has tended to give lately. And you're certainly right that the uh, sort of the, the left turn this takes from seeming to be a movie about vengeance to being something equally surreal but affirming is also quite remarkable. So a uh, film that uh, I would absolutely recommend that people check out and makes me want to see more from that uh, filmmaker. I guess just to clarify, Denzel did get Best Actor nom. Absolutely deserves it, as far as I'm concerned. Although I don't think I've seen any of the other leading performances. But I will also say that whichever of those uh, four turns out to be the worst stole Nicolas Cage's spot for Pig. If it was down to (laughs) Nicolas Cage versus Denzel Washington, then you'd have a fair fight in the Best Actor. Well, on that note, uh, so however things go, you can now nod knowingly when the uh, statues are given out and uh, we'll be back uh, next week with uh, perhaps some uh, strange occult stuff and even maybe an escape demon or two stuff i mean once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games pelgrane press ask for gown arc dream dark tower and pro fantasy software music as always is by james simple audio editing by rob borges support our patreon at patreon.com backslash ken and robin stop the scrappy street urchin that is this podcast from fading into comic strip history by joining such backers as michael kewell ben vincent chad ward dan simons and james candelino Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Enjoy such classic designs as Fun Ruiner. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.